Hello and welcome to The Grand Thunk, the podcast in which we, Alex Blanchard and Rhiannon Kearns, discuss what we've been reading, watching and listening to. A fairly simple premise. We have transcripts in our link tree in our Instagram bio at The Grand Thunk. You can message us there or email us thegrandthunk at gmail.com. We love to hear from you. So please subscribe, rate, review and tell all your friends. Hello everyone. Today we have a really beautiful guest with us who's our first guest on the podcast. We haven't had any guests before so we're so excited. Hayley McGee who is a self-confessed love idiot, actor and author. She runs an incredibly stimulating podcast, The Cost of Love, and her first book, The Ex-Boyfriend Yard Sale, is coming out imminently. And I've been reading her newsletter for years, The Comets, and it's filled with all sorts of fascinating comments on creating and writing and money advice, which is so rare for creatives to talk about money. It was so useful and fascinating to read your newsletter, and it's been so wonderful to watch your journey from that newsletter and then seeing all the things that you've been creating over this past year. And I'm sure I can speak for you, Rihanna, as well, when I say that we are honestly so excited to have you on our podcast. Well, I'm so excited to be on your podcast. This is so fun. (laughs) Welcome. It's great to have you here. How are you? I'm doing really well. We just did the very final, final, final sign off on my book yesterday. Mm -hmm. So that'll be out the 27th of May. So I'm feeling like quite elated. Yeah, big mm, moment, yeah. I guess, after a long process of getting the book to here to then have that sign-off moment. Did you did you celebrate on market or were you just sleeping, relieved to have it done? No, <laughs> there's been so many times earlier in the process of the book where I felt relieved and someone in my life will, because I will have articulated, oh, I'm just doing this edit now and it's just really taking mm-hmm. it out of me and I've got to get it off and oh, I'm late for the deadline and I'll get it in and... Yeah, in the summer, my boyfriend, one of those deadlines, he bought me a book and he bought me a map of the Isle of Skye. And he was like, let's plan a trip there, which we haven't done yet, to celebrate. But then it's like in another six weeks, there's another deadline and another push Mm -hmm. like that. And it's been an endless string of deadlines. So no, now I'm not celebrating (laughs) at all. The life of a creative (laughs) freelancer. There's one thing to the next, isn't it? It's a bit of a stepping stones constantly. Yeah, yeah, just lurching from one deadline to Mm -hmm. the next, which is definitely something I would like to correct going (laughs) forward, just in my approach. I feel like there's an extra pressure, isn't there, on creatives, because your work is something that gets shown to other people, there's an extra pressure of having to show Mm. it, that you wouldn't ask an accountant, you wouldn't be like, oh, go on, show us what you've been working on the last year. But when you're a creative, there's this pressure when people are like, well, go on, where's the book? And you're like, ah! haven't done it, (laughs) haven't finished it, (laughs) or it's like in the works. Yeah, or I always feel like it's not good enough yet. I just need a little bit more time to fix it before you take it away. Yeah, yeah, I can definitely relate to that. I always have that five minute before an audition panic of being like, oh no, I've not prepped my, what have you been up to recently blurb where they always say that and I'm like, what what do they do, are you asking about my life do I just tell you I've been for a walk up the mountains do you want to know about my career should I just read my CV to you am I meant to be sounding interesting overthink this a bit more please like you said that pressure to constantly have something to show for your creative processes 
Yeah, it's definitely wearing, isn't it? It can be quite heavy, I think, sometimes. Mm-hmm. But speaking of your marvellous book, which we both absolutely loved. So for our, our lovely mm-hmm. listeners, I'm going to give them a little bit of an overview of your book in front of you. So, you know, you can jump in and take over at any point if I'm doing <laughs> your book a disservice. No, this is going to be great. <laughs> so Haley has written a fantastic book, The Ex-Boyfriend Yard Sale, which oh, I, I honestly loved it so much. It's, well, mm. would you call it a memoir? Yeah. Yeah. It's a memoir that traces Haley's life as a creator and as a lover through the gifts from her ex-boyfriends. And it begins with Haley's solution to being in debt, looking around at what she could possibly sell and realizing that the items she could sell were all gifts from her ex-boyfriends. But how can you put a price on items that hold so much sentiment, good or bad? How do the relationships affect the price? In Haley's own words, is the mixtape from your first love worth more than the vintage typewriter from a philanderer? Do the lies you told the guy who gave you a jewelry box dock its price? <laughs> so to determine the prices of these objects, Haley set out to create a formula for the cost of love and all its variables. How long the relationship was, the life lessons it taught, the price of the object to begin with. This brilliant concept becomes the focus of a one-woman show Haley is creating. So the reader is plunged into the world of creation whilst also following the history of Haley's relationships. It is a book of such vulnerability and assertion with so many varied threads that make for an utterly compelling read. I honestly couldn't put it down. Mm-hmm. And now I also feel like I kind of already know you and not like I'm meeting you for the first <laughs> time today, which I think is a testament to your brilliant writing. Oh, so congratulations so on a much. wonderful book. I'm so thrilled. I'm thrilled with that description of it. And I'm so glad that you were able to read it. Oh, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I started it on a day when I had planned to do quite a lot of work. <laughs> and then at sort of two o'clock, I was still reading it like, oh, my God, I really need to do some work. But this is so, yeah, transfixing, really. And I love, I love the structure of it. I love the way that you've got the huge concept of creating this formula of love and the gifts. And then you've got your history coming through with all the relationships and so much of that vulnerability but also then the play I think the layers of thought that are going into it and the different notions that are pulled through is just a really clever way of writing a book and I'd love to ask you about your inspirations for that formula and and how you came up with that idea of marking your life through objects in that way. I really did come up with the idea for the show through a conversation with my credit card company Mm. that's all true I looked around my flat and realized the only things I could sell had been given to me by by different ex-boyfriends. And then I started thinking, hold on a second, I can't just sell these things. I've got to make a show about trying to sell these things. Mm. And then I really started thinking about how does one price stuff that's left over after a, a romantic relationship dies? And I think the first thing I went to think about pricing was this necklace that I have from one of my mm-hmm. first boyfriends. And... Mm-hmm. I like to say that I suffered a flesh wound for that necklace because when I went to visit this person, I took a bus and on the bus someone had wedged a scalpel, like a box cutter between the seats. And when I moved to get comfortable, the knife sliced through my new jeans, through Mm. the flesh of my bum, drawing blood. And so I thought, well, surely that flesh wound should increase the value of the gift that Mm -hmm. this person's given me. And then I very quickly did a whole bunch of other assessments like, bun, I told him I loved him and I knew I was lying. And... (laughs) Things like that. And I thought, wouldn't it be interesting to try to quantify something that is probably impossible to 
quantify. Mm -hmm. And I think also I was at a place in my life where I'm a very emotionally driven person and I live in the realm of feelings rather than logic. Mm -hmm. And I was feeling really low. I was feeling like I've had all these relationships and they haven't added up to anything let me apply logic to heartbreak mm. and see if that does anything for the way that I feel mm-hmm. and feel about it. So that was part of the, I want to say the exercise mm-hmm. as well. I love that idea of forcing yourself to almost flick the switch because I think you do get people who are logical in, in how they deal with emotions and relationships and breakups. It can be very black and white and that's just how some people work. And then you also have the other end of the spectrum very emotion driven Mm -hmm. it's almost forcing yourself to switch onto that other path and go I'm going to do that for a bit and then somehow that process still brought you back to that creative way of dealing with it I think Mm. that's it's really interesting to try out the different stream almost see how does it work on their side yeah yeah totally my mum's a scientist she's a molecular biologist and so I've always had a lot of reverence for math and science and people with those kind of brains yeah and I'm very comfortable bringing myself and bringing my ideas to people who are just much smarter than I am in those realms. Mm -hmm. And so I think there's something in that too. It felt easier for me than I think it would for other people who haven't had the same exposure to that. Mm -hmm. There's a guy, he coined a term mathemophobia. And (laughs) it's a really big problem, especially Mm. among young girls Mm -hmm. where something happens and they start being afraid of math and thinking that they're bad at math. And math is a very useful language Mm. that we all speak on a day-to-day basis because we deal Mm. with money on a day-to-day basis. Yeah. And so there was also something very powerful in embracing it Mm. as it relates to my personal life. Yeah. Which I think is what your newsletter does when you give all this money advice. It had never occurred to me to treat money or taxes and things like that with the reverence that I treat other areas of my work. But actually, it's as important to cultivate those areas, particularly, I think, when you don't have a stable income in the same way that other people do. (laughs) Yeah. Politically, too, I think as women, there's a lot to be said about, you know, we vote with how we spend our money. Mm -hmm. That's really a way that we assert power. And so if you have a handle on your money, mm-hmm. then you have more power. Yeah. And financial literacy mm-hmm. is another language. And actually, as I was doing research for this book, mm-hmm. I ended up going to a lecture by this economist who wrote a book called The Value of Everything. Mm-hmm. I always mess up her name. I think it's Mariana Mazzucatu or something like that. Mm-hmm. She was talking about the redistribution of wealth, but she showed this chart where she showed, you know, the rate of inflation steadily going up. And then Mm -hmm. she showed the rate of inflation inside financial services and the Mm -hmm. financial service industries. And it's just like ballooning and growing at such a higher rate. And I Mm -hmm. realized, okay, so basically people who work in those industries and those industries have this inside knowledge of Mm -hmm. financial literacy And if it really is just a language that I need to learn to speak that would make me richer and therefore give me more power, Mm -hmm. holy shit, I (laughs) want to learn that language. And and I hope the book empowers other people to to do the same. I'm really by no means an expert. I mean, I'm doing very basic things in the book, like tracking my finances and trying to get out of debt and trying to not, you know, leave bills unopened. 
even that is not something I do naturally. Mm. <laughs> it's something that I have to make myself do. In terms of other research for your book, you mentioned another book, Important Artifacts and by Leanne Shapton. Will you tell us a bit about that? Yeah. So after one of my R&Ds that I did at the Battersea Arts Centre, mm-hmm. a friend of mine who's a writer, his name's Jordan Tannehill. He's a fellow Canadian living in the UK, and he's also a writer and a theatre maker. Mm-hmm. He was like, you've got to read this book. Yeah. It's called Important Artifacts and Personal Property from the Collection of Lenore Doolin and Harold Morris, including books, street fashion, and jewelry. Mm-hmm. And it's set up like an auction catalog. Yeah. And it tells the story of the entire arc of a relationship, a fictional relationship between Lenore and Harold mm-hmm. through 325 objects huh. that they had. And it includes things like, you know, these salt and pepper shakers that are on the front cover, photographs of them, clothing that they had during the relationship, notes that they wrote each other. And it tries to put a price on all of these things. And it's fascinating to me because one of the things I was so curious about was how does the context in which we place an object radically change its perceived value? Mm -hmm. Putting something out at a yard sale it has a very low perceived value. You know, things go for 25 cents or Mm -hmm. people are expected to haggle down the price versus putting something in an auction house where you start with a price and the expectation is that the price will go up and up and up and up and up. Mm -hmm. And so that was something that I was really curious to play with in my show around these objects. And then I think this normally happens to me in a creative process where I'll consciously be aware of things that I'm curious. And then as I work on the show other things at play reveal themselves to me. So now I'm able to say, I think I was also really interested in this concept from a self-worth point of view. Yeah. And this idea of, you know, treating oneself as an object and, Mm -hmm. you know, the context that an object in is basically a story that surrounds an object and Mm -hmm. the stories that we tell about ourselves and we tell about ourselves to ourselves affect how we value ourselves and therefore how other people value us. Yes, that's so true. I couldn't agree more. I was flicking through the book, the first few pages that they have on the Amazon review or something, and it was so fascinating. I was so intrigued. And I thought it was a real relationship that the objects were from. And I was like, how did they manage to get such intimate things that are so small and so seemingly insignificant if they were in your life? But when you see them in another person's life, they're so magnificent, I, I think... It's a testament to how nosy I am that I'm so intrigued by them. (laughs) No, I think you're so right about the narratives that you tell yourself being so linked to your self-worth. I think that's a really important lesson that we don't get taught. Yeah. Yeah. And I think too, you know, this book where we're really looking at objects, we live in a capitalist culture. Mm -hmm. So many of us are materialists Mm -hmm. in the way that we imbue our objects with a lot of meaning Mm -hmm. and sentimentality. And there is something like an archaeological dig about Mm. this auction catalog book. And we're trying to parse together the life cycle of a quote-unquote failed romance just Mm. by these objects. And things like, you know, it says like, lot, 
1076 seed packet and snowboard trowel, you know, and it describes it and then it tells you how long it is and then it says mm-hmm. 12 to $25. And then you get more, slightly more personal. They show all of the inside of their travel kits yeah. with their all their shampoo and oh their stuff. Oh my God, look at the detail. Yeah. It's incredible. And then the creator of the piece, Leanne Shapton, has written all of the correspondence that also mm. is included in the book. And so here it's like, the Lives of Women and Girls, which is a book by Alice Munro, who I want to talk mm-hmm. about later, and describes mm-hmm. the book. And then it says, laid in it is a note from Morris to Doolin. It reads in part, I think you're overreacting. I am sorry to have had to miss dinner, truly sorry. And I should have called, yes, but it was a work party. Please understand, these functions are boringly important. <laughs> and it says 10 to $15. <laughs> and so there's just, yeah, these little bits, these mm. little portals into different mm. points in their relationship that you get through little notes like that portals is just the right word for it and has this whole process the play and creating the book and everything since has it changed how you now look at objects are there things that hold value to you or maybe gifts you now receive that you will that you will look at completely differently and you'll maybe investigate Mm. them more or are you able to sort of separate that from how you move forward that's really interesting i mean i come from people who like stuff (laughs) I call my Aunt Linda the queen of the yard sale. (laughs) So having strong attachment to stuff has always been something that I have had and that I continue to grapple Mm. with. For instance, you know, my boyfriend at Christmas, he wrapped all of my presents and then he put like a little tag on each of the presents (laughs) and wrote a little note on it. And I keep opening up this drawer in my desk and I'm like, oh my God, there are all of the... (laughs) <laughs> notes and I'm like I should just get rid of them I'm like I can't get rid of them <laughs> no I love that I'm the same I keep so many things like that I, when I was moving recently I had a similar thing with the oh. notes one of my really good friends Lauren who actually was the first person I thought of with this book I was like I can't wait for her to read this oh thank you guys <laughs> but when we moved in to our last place in London she got me a gorgeous gift of like a big basket and it had bread in and wine mm. and some spaghetti and like a marinara sauce that she'd made. And she put a little note on each saying like bread. So this house may never go hungry. Oh, wine. So this house oh. may always have laughter. There was like salt. So it must have flavor. And I was literally like, this is so oh, beautiful. So and I couldn't, yeah, I couldn't not keep them. And then mm. I found them when I was moving house and, and then had the moment of, do I move them with me? Which of course <laughs> I did because I'm terrible for that. <laughs> but I think it is really interesting. I think mm. you have to really examine so much of, your belongings and how you have relationships to them and and what's happened to get to this point with the creative process. Yeah. It's going to have a some effect on, I guess, your kind of current standing with things because it was a huge chapter. And and actually you touched on it earlier about the R&D process, which is research and development in a creative process. Thank you. (laughs) So, (laughs) which I really loved reading. I really think that it was lovely to have that laid bare in, in the book as you had it. And you explore so much of what it's like to put together a show and an artistic piece and navigating the time pressures Mm. and the funding applications and working with people and all of those things that often just aren't mentioned and I think people don't Mm -hmm. realize happen unless they're living in that world Mm. it's so refreshing to see and why was it important to you to have that included in the book that was a question when when I was doing the book proposal and starting to write the book Mm. there was a lot of discussion between me my agent and the editors about whether or not I should include the live show in the book. You know, and other people were thinking like, don't complicate it, just Mm -hmm. write about making the formula. Mm -hmm. But as I tried to do that, I started thinking, well, 
now I seem a little bit out to lunch mm-hmm. because I'm writing a whole book about trying to make a formula. But in fact, making the formula was something I was doing in service of making a show. Mm-hmm. Then I was like, well, do I write a a book about making a formula in service of writing a book? Mm-hmm. But then it's not really about my experience and mm-hmm. it's meant to be a memoir. Mm-hmm. And so I thought in the live show, I talk about making the show. Yeah. And in the book, I think I need to talk about making the show. And a little bit near the end of the book, mm-hmm. I start talking about writing the book. Yeah. And that's also just my obsession with wanting to not lie mm. and wanting to be straightforward about what my experience actually has mm. been. So that was actually my reason for doing it. It was like, you know, that thing where it's like, if you lie, mm-hmm. It's very hard to remember all of your lies and keep track of all of your lies. And I think so. I think there was something there where I just thought, let me just tell it like it actually was. Mm -hmm. Well, it screams authenticity. And I think you wouldn't have had that if you had had to alter the process. And I think that's why there's such a lovely voice in the book and you feel really connected mm. to you I was gonna say as a character which is ridiculous because no. you're a real person and it's a memoir <laughs> but you you do have that investment in it all and I think that's because of the the process that you yeah. went through to get there and it, it's great that it's included I think it's a really refreshing part of the oh, book thank you totally it's so unique and I think everyone loves this behind the scenes mm. peak as well feel that intimacy and the way you were talking about the relationships with some of the people that you were creating with, like like Gemma, who was helping you develop the formula, I loved how kind of honest you were about snapping at her or something. <laughs> I was horrible. Yeah, but I think that's so important that relationships do get strained when you're creating something because it's totally. you're so invested and they're so invested and there's so much vision not to get too grand about it but there's vision involved that is incredibly emotional when it gets transgressed or when everything's heightened and I just loved that expression of those relationships and also when you're making a theater show Mm. even though I was ostensibly doing it to get out of debt you know my first version of the ex-boyfriend yards like I lost like seven grand doing Mm. it you know it was not a money maker (laughs) Mm. You're not doing it really for the money. You're doing it because of other emotional things mm. and other ambitions at play. Although it could be said, this is a business endeavor. It's very much <laughs> an endeavor of the heart. And yeah. I do think too, because I make solo work and I like working alone mm-hmm. and I like being in charge, it means that then I set up scenarios where for that reason, I'm the most invested. <laughs> Although lots of people on my team were incredible and, mm. and very invested in their own right and serving the part of the project that they were in charge of, mm. the most neurotic emotional investment was coming from mm-hmm. me. And I was also the person, you know, quote unquote, in charge. <laughs> yeah. And so I think that did make for some scenes <laughs> that I hope I've been honest about in the book of me lashing out at the people who are underpaid and helping me and contributing huge amounts of energy and talent and and skills (laughs) when you were talking about putting money into things and effectively losing money through putting on a show actually Mm -hmm. just before you joined us Alex and I were chatting about the book and I was showing her that my copy of it has got like a thousand folded pages of bits that just like (laughs) scream to me that I needed and there's this one bit that I feel like I have to read if that's okay with you yeah. That I just need to have in my canon to say to people, you know, in those moments when you're like, oh, what would I say? This is it. <laughs> okay. So it's a section where you're talking about the price of art 
and how much money goes into creating art. It's not just, oh, mm. I paint a picture and it's up in a gallery. There's, you know, huge amounts of expense. The quote begins, I tell him, everything I've created for myself has pretty much operated at a loss. An expensive hobby, Milo replies nonchalantly. The sting of this label blindsides me like a jellyfish sting when floating in the ocean. It's not a hobby. Just technically, he grins, isn't the definition of work being paid? I think the definition of work is the pursuit of a purpose. He's about to retort, but I lean in and say, would you claim raising children or taking care of a sick relative is a hobby? If we follow your definition, I think that's where we'll end up. And that is incredibly sexist. And I just was like, the book shirt, I was like, yes, that is it. Because <laughs> <laughs> it was so, it is, I think that definition of doing something creative and something that you enjoy, therefore kind of comes at a cost of a judgment from other people as, well, if it's for you and it's fun and it's not making mm. money, it's just a glorified hobby. And I just thought you absolutely nailed that. <laughs> oh, thank you. <laughs> yeah, I stand by what I wrote. <laughs> Good. As you should. <laughs> What is your creative process like? How do you go about your day? That's such a good question. My friend, who I call Ollie in the book, mm -hmm. but is based on my real life childhood best friend, says that I'm obsessed with systems management, and particularly <laughs> like the systems management of myself. And so I'm constantly trying to figure out different routines that mm -hmm. will help me get the work done that I want to get done mm. and tons of other things too. When I was making the show, I developed a process of doing, I would call it the sacred hour. So mm -hmm. no matter what, the first hour of the day was always dedicated to working on the script of the show. Mm -hmm. Sometimes I would do three hours if I could. It was my first hour and it was like, get up, roll out of bed. And I'm someone who can start in their pajamas and like mm -hmm. no bra and like no deodorant just like sweating away by 11 a.m then <laughs> um, being like i should brush my teeth now <laughs> so that was my way of working on the show mm -hmm. and that's the first time that i've had a process that was showing up every day and being consistent mm -hmm. and it yielded such good results for me because nothing i'd done before i'd gone into feeling like i've actually given myself the time that i wanted mm -hmm. to create the art that I wanted to create. So yeah. that was a really good kind of foundation. And then writing the book, when I did the first draft of the book, the vomit draft, mm -hmm. I did a thousand words a day. Gosh, that's quite a lot. And the book was 95,000 words in the first draft. Mm -hmm. And so that took me about three months to do. Mm -hmm. And I'm also someone who needs to do tons and tons and tons of editing. I'm dyslexic, so mm -hmm. I'm not necessarily very linear in my thinking. I don't know if that actually has to do with my dyslexia or just who I am. <laughs> but I'm someone who likes to do a lot of edits. So I did mm -hmm. my vomit draft. And nobody saw that draft. Then mm -hmm. I went through that. And then I did three hours a day on that. And I mm -hmm. do three hours because... After three hours, it's sort of diminishing returns when mm -hmm. it comes to writing. And it's sort of just like, I don't know if I'm making things better now or just changing things. Yeah. Yeah. But when I got down to crunch time, when the first draft was due, then I was like six or eight or mm -hmm. more hours in the kind of final weeks there and had to be super diligent about it. I don't think writing a book is hard, mm -hmm. but it is sort of a matter of putting your butt in a chair and facing your computer mm. in a really regimented way. And I think that's the thing that, I think that is the thing that most people have trouble with. Yeah. I think if, if you read a lot and you, you like to write, you can write a book. It's just mm. that getting your bum in the chair every day. <laughs> 
you did a course at the beginning of lockdown about writing, which I remember finding so helpful. Yeah. At the very beginning of lockdown in March 2020, well, I had an idea to do a creative quarantine challenge, which would Mm. be for 14 days, every day I would send out a little creative prompt. And people could spend anywhere from 10 minutes to an hour exploring the prompt in whatever medium they work in, collage, dance, writing, Mm. poetry, whatever it was. 800 people signed up. Wow. For the first one. Mm. And we had a Facebook group and we did a live Q&A where I answered people's questions about creativity, which I'm, I can't believe I did because it's like, <laughs> I'm really not any more of an expert than anyone else, but it was really fun. And then I ran it again for the following two weeks. And then I just made it into a self-directed online course that people yeah. can do. I think it's 28 pounds or something like that. Every day for 14 days, you'll either work away on one project or you mm. can kind of use it as a creative gym to flex your creative muscles and just sort of get back in the habit of creating yeah. every day and take the curse off it a little bit. Yeah, I thought that was so useful, giving structure, I think, to people at the beginning of lockdown. So we were all so <sighs> in limbo, kind of it sitting there at home being like, what are we doing? Yeah, so There's just too much space, isn't there? And yeah. I think there's like unspoken moment of going, well, now's the time to be creative because mm. no one's got any work to do. Like, this is it, mm, go. Yeah. But that void is it sucks you in and also there's not a lot there to spark off. So actually that gym idea, having mm-hmm. exercises and tasks to just set that process rolling is, mm. yeah, definitely needed. I think in my normal life as well as lockdown life. <laughs> yeah. And I really hate the word practice. I hate when people <laughs> say, oh, my artistic practice. There's something about it that always just smacks yeah. of pretension for me. <laughs> I mean, that's something interesting to look at because you know, my parents are academics, but there's a little mm-hmm. bit of me that's like, just talk normal. Why are you, you know, why are you making it fancy? But that being said, I do think that these things are about showing up day after mm-hmm. day after day after day after day. And yeah. it is a thing that you practice. It's not mm. something yeah. and there are moments of magic, but but it is kind of like being a workhorse. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I couldn't agree more. And it's about understanding that inspiration, motivation moment. You know, when you feel like the wind of God is running through you and that you are somehow a messenger from the heavens, that moment isn't constant. That's just a splash in the pan. But it's about everything else you put into it alongside it that's integral. Yeah. I love that you said that, the wind of God rushing through us. <laughs> Every time before I go on stage, I recite to myself, Martha Graham wrote in a letter to Agnes DeMille. Do you know this? She wrote, it's something like, you don't have to believe in yourself or your work. You just have to keep the channel open to the forces that motivate you. Mm. Keep the channel open. No artist is pleased. There is no satisfaction, whatever, at any time. Mm -hmm. Only a queer divine dissatisfaction, a blessed unrest that keeps us marching and makes us more alive than others. And makes us more alive than others. I said that to a fellow actor and he was like, mm-hmm. I don't like that. That's hubris. That's hubris. <laughs> but there's something I really like about that. You know, that combination of showing up regularly mm. and then, and keeping that channel open. Yeah. Mm. And really trying not to judge what's coming through you. Mm. I think I've nicked that from the people around Michelangelo used to think that the work done by him was was the work of God, that it was running through his hands. And that was their way of understanding his genius. 
So I think I I've actually that. nicked that. <laughs> it's you great. can claim it. No one will know. It's fine. <laughs> and Liz Gilbert does a great TED talk on it mm. that came out in like 2011, which I'd recommend to any person engaged in the creative process listening mm-hmm. to this about the idea that people had a genius, mm-hmm. that their great ideas didn't really come from them. And then how that kind of got mangled in the last hundred years where mm-hmm. we started calling people themselves geniuses. Yes. Okay. Yeah. The trouble with that and the enormous amount of pressure then that puts mm-hmm. on an artist. Yeah. Yeah. I remember listening to her giving a podcast, I think it was Elizabeth Day on the How to Fail, where she talked about the way in which she will write a book and that's as good as she can give in that moment. And that's that. There's no mm. search for perfection or whatever. It's There's no pretension involved in it. There's no searching for a higher thing. It's just what she's putting out in the moment, which I thought was so honest and liberating, actually, that you you write your book, obviously you work on it and you edit it, but at the end of the day, what you create is what you create and you can't do better than that. (laughs) Yeah. We are going to mash the themes of the (laughs) ex-boyfriend yard sale with the Grand Thunk and ask you to give some recommendations based around old loves, new loves and things that you've been loving in recent years. So tell us about a recommendation that's an old love of yours. Okay, so an old love Mm. is anything written by Alice Munro and Alice Munro is a Canadian writer Mm-hmm. I think she's in her 80s now. Gosh. And she is a primarily a short story writer. She's published something like 14 collections of short stories, one novel. Yeah. And her short stories have appeared in The New Yorker. Mm-hmm. She won the Nobel Prize for Literature in mm-hmm. 2013. And she lives in a tiny town mm-hmm. in Canada. And she writes mostly about rural Canada and characters mm-hmm. there. But in a certain way, it doesn't matter where they're set because her depictions of relationships between people Mm. and the inner conflicts that we face while navigating our relationships between ourselves and between other people are so incisive and revealing. I feel like she's doing the thing that we love that comedians do, which Mm -hmm. is when they say something and we all laugh because we've thought it, but we've never really had the courage to say it. She's kind of doing the step before that where she's Mm -hmm. putting to words a feeling or a sense or an atmosphere that we know, but Mm -hmm. that we haven't been able to articulate. Mm -hmm. And she does it in just the most perceptive way. Mm. She's often compared to Chekhov Mm -hmm. in her way that she captures humans Mm-hmm. and our relationships. I wanted to talk in particular, one of the books that I have of hers here in the UK is called The Runaway. And the mm-hmm. first story in it is about a middle-aged woman professor named Sylvia and mm-hmm. her relationship with this uneducated woman in this kind of rural place that she lives in, mm-hmm. Carla, who's trying to leave her brutish husband. Mm-hmm. There's this little tiny part here that I want to share with you guys and see what you think. So Carla goes over to Sylvia's house and Sylvia asks Carla, how is your little goat? I forget her name. And Carla said, Flora, she's gone. Gone? Did you sell her? She disappeared. We don't know where. Oh, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. But isn't there a chance she'll turn up again? No answer. Sylvia looked directly at the girl, something that up to now she had not been able to do and saw that her eyes were full of tears, her face blotchy. In fact, it looked grubby and she seemed bloated with distress. 
She didn't do anything to avoid Sylvia's look. She drew her lips tight over her teeth and shut her eyes and rocked back and forth as if in a soundless howl. And then, shockingly, she did howl. She howled and wept and gulped for air and tears ran down her cheeks and snot out of her nostrils. And she began to look around wildly for something to wipe with. Sylvia ran and got a handful of Kleenex. And she says, don't worry, here you are, here you'll be all right, she said, thinking that maybe the thing to do would be to take the girl in her arms, but she had not the least wish to do that, and it might make things worse. The girl might feel how little Sylvia wanted to do such a thing, how appalled she was, in fact, by this noisy fit. The scene kind of goes on like that, you know, Sylvia comforting her while being utterly repulsed by it and at the same time then she helps her try to leave her marriage and drives her to the bus station to try to get out of town that's so poignant that bloated with despair or whatever it was oh wow yeah thank you for sharing that i love reading short stories and i haven't in a while so i think that's a lovely one to pick up on she's just one to read if you are writing Mm. it's so hard to tell why her writing is so good because everything about it is just so good it's hard to parse it apart Mm. but it's one that you know you think you should be on a diet of alice monroe and then going and working on your (laughs) writing project also the tensions that you're talking about in that of trying to help someone and be generous and trying to be some sort of benevolent figure whilst also being repulsed. I think those tensions are so remarkable to talk about and to write about. And I think that's probably why that scene feels so poignant. It's because of that absolute disparity of feeling. Yeah. And that feeling of, you know, sometimes when we do things that are quote unquote good, Mm. it's a real struggle to do them or it is a real struggle to help people. Mm And also just that idea that other people's distress, other people's fear, sadness, rage Mm -hmm. can be very affronting Mm -hmm. and very, very, Mm -hmm. very off-putting. Yeah. 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 We've all sunk into the the weight of that. (laughs) Yeah. And it's a horrible thing to admit Mm -hmm. because you know that other person is really suffering Mm -hmm. and yet there's something about it that's just so disgusting yeah yeah and it's not really a spoken about thing is it that's a feeling that must be universal but i've never seen it acknowledged Mm. like that or or heard it acknowledged like that no well it's shameful kind of i totally agree shameful but whether it's been reframed nowadays out of the shame into that idea of setting boundaries or looking after yourself first Mm. whether that is a less shameful reframing of it's really emotionally exhausting helping other people and actually that takes a lot out of you and is that feeling of having too much taken out of your cup is revolting Mm. (laughs) yeah or sometimes other people's distress Mm. stirs up something in yourself Mm. reminds you of something of yourself it touches a part of you that you'd rather Mm. ignore Mm. and the reaction is to get angry Mm -hmm. and want to make the other person stop yeah 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 the oh don't cry (laughs) exactly (laughs) exactly yeah yeah i love that about her Mm. what her writing has done is plunge us into a conversation around psychology Mm -hmm. which is one of my favorite things to think about and talk about and Mm. explore. (laughs) I love us being so profound. (laughs) (laughs) It sounds like definitely an old love that is an anchor to you in terms of the creative process Mm. in your writing as well as something Mm. you love. A set of stories that are just brilliant. Yeah. 
Linkity link. <laughs> what about a a more recent love, a recommendation that you've kind of enjoyed over the last few years? I think with this one, I am going to talk about The Great British Bake Off. Yes! <laughs> you win. Particularly series one. So I didn't get into The Bake Off until maybe a few years ago. I moved to the UK mm-hmm. five years ago, and I didn't watch it the first few years. It was definitely on Channel 4 when I started watching. Mm-hmm. It's rightful home. <laughs> <laughs> oh, no, the wrong way around. Sorry, Mary Berry. I take it back. Sorry, Mary Berry. What happened? Wait, no, you need to start from the beginning to explain. Sorry. Okay, context, Alex, was the Great <laughs> British Bake Off was on BBC and it had Mary Berry and Paul Hollywood and Mel and Sue, the, the uh-huh. classic four. And then when was it? I'd say maybe four or five years ago, it moved to Channel 4 and <laughs> yeah. Mary Berry and Mel and Sue did not depart from right. their matriarchal okay. BBC and join the realms of Channel 4. And mm-hmm. so it was just Paul Hollywood in a big tent that moved to Channel 4. But then mm-hmm. he was joined by Prue. At, I mean, I should stop because we're just going to turn this into a fan podcast. No. <laughs> it's great. Keep going. Keep going. This is your moment, Rhiannon. This is your moment. I know. I'm so happy to have you here, Hayley, because before when the Bake Off has come up, I've been met by an absolute resounding silence from Alex. I've had to think about moving in a different direction. It's been very, very traumatic for me so I'm glad to have an ally in this important discussion (laughs) with all reality tv watching for me Mm -hmm. I resist it I poo poo it then I watch it ironically (laughs) and then I'm like shush 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 I need to really take this in and then I'm sort of counting down the hours till the next one comes on so that's my journey with every reality show that I get into. And I have to dip in very sparingly because I get obsessed. Mm. I write about in the book, there was a period of time where I was floating between a friend's house and a couple of 70 year olds and tooting. And I was sort of like a little bit homeless for a while. I spent all of, and I don't write about this in the book. I spent most of those evenings watching the early episodes of Great British Bake Off. <laughs> and holy moly, season one mm-hmm. They're in a different town every week. The town is connected Mm. to the different things that they're baking every single week. Mm -hmm. And they have these little segments in the show where Mel and Sue go and talk to some kind of like food historian Mm -hmm. or food academic about the history of muffins (laughs) or like the origins of soda bread. (laughs) And it's so much nerdier and more (laughs) academic than it is now. And I really, really, really like that quality Mm -hmm. about those early episodes. And also the food is just way less beautiful than people are producing every year. The wow factor just seems to go up and up and up on those showstoppers. (laughs) And so there was a real focus in those early seasons Mm -hmm. about being home bakers Mm -hmm. and not being professionals. That is just so comforting Mm -hmm. and satisfying. And it's a very kind show where Mm -hmm. people are helping each other out and... The terrible innuendo jokes oh. <laughs> are just tickle a part of me that normally I would never want tickled. And <laughs> I don't even really, you know, I liked baking as a teenager a little bit, but I'm not a big baker or food person. Mm-hmm. But there's something about it that just feels like lying in bed and eating a cookie. <laughs> it's a very soft landing mm, of a show. Yes. Brilliantly put. What do you think? Brilliantly put. I love it. So terrible confession, because I know I've talked about the Bake Off as if I am its number one fan. I didn't watch (laughs) those first seasons, like when they were coming out. I don't know how many years ago that was. It was a long time ago. Oh, it's a long time ago now. Mm. 
But I saw that, that you're describing where they're moving to different towns. And I was like, what is going on? The whole pitching a tent in different towns and being like, oh, we're in a coastal mm-hmm. town. So this week we're making a fish dish or, you know, like mm-hmm. moving yeah. it around. I was like, that show was so much more complex than it is now. They've really taken mm-hmm. away all of that. They kept the food history thing a little bit, but that's gone now as well. Like, I remember when it was mm-hmm. Sandy Toxvig presenting... She would always mm-hmm. do like a little segment presenting from, I don't know, some market town or even a different country mm. and talking about why that pastry lattice was a certain way or whatever. Yeah. Which is quite fun for the, the food nerd in us all, but that's gone now too. But uh, it's just lovely. It's just a lovely show. And mm. it's also lovely with enough like steaks. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Me and my friends, we all watch the first episode so you can get your eye in mm. on people. And then by <laughs> week two, you have to have committed to who you think is going to win. Oh, wow. And then we'll always be in like the WhatsApp conversation, like talking about, oh, I didn't back him. And he he's really good now and all of this. And then I think I, I forced them all to join in with this. So I don't get to play. I have to basically I like run it and then Uh I bake a cake of their choice for the person who wins that's so great (laughs) but it is good fun and I've actually been watching just yesterday I was watching they're doing the stand up to cancer charity one me too I'm so into (gasps) them so good I had to go back and watch some of the previous season because I've done all of the current season now and I watched the Louis (laughs) Theroux one and I watched yeah the one with Richard Dreyfuss Mm. yeah they're so good because it's like another layer down it's another peel of like there really is no pressure like some of the people from yesterday's show it was just like a mess who was it James A. Castor I think the comedian was just like uncooked flapjack just slopped and it was fine because they're celebrities and it's for charity and it's just uh. is James McAvoy baking at any point yes did I see that somewhere he's done and I actually haven't seen that episode have you Haley? seen that episode you know what I don't know if I have seen that one is that from this season that's from this season of stand up to cancer I might watch that yeah <laughs> I think you should watch it. You know, sometimes I, I, I'm saying that I watched him, but sometimes mm. I have it on and then I'm like editing mm. my website or working on my newsletter. I have a strong fixation <laughs> that it would just be fantastic to watch someone with such integrity and status. When I say status, I mean just sort of... Poise. Poise, yeah. I think of him as such a huge character, person, <laughs> personification mm. of a person... I just can't even imagine him baking. Yeah. <laughs> it attracts a good variety of celebrities. And yeah. it's always a really good mix bag. It really <laughs> is. And I found watching Louis Theroux do it so interesting because <laughs> he clearly had practiced and he doesn't <laughs> oh. win. But he, at the oh. end, he's like, I'm pretty sure I came second. I'm pretty sure. They didn't say it. but And oh. there's something about him that's just like... There's a, a, an earnestness there and the kind of good yes. student. You really see that side and it, yes, I found it very satisfying. Oh, how interesting. Have we turned you, Alex? Are you joining the brigade? Are you going to watch seven episodes by the time I next speak to you? I might watch the James yeah. McAvoy episode. <laughs> and we'll do. see. It might be, it might be a slippery slope. <laughs> we have to talk about another recent love because we talked about it just before the podcast and I read it on your recommendation. <laughs> I'm so glad. I want to talk about it now. (laughs) Oh, great. Well, why don't you introduce it? Oh, gosh. So we were speaking about Eleanor Ferrante's My Brilliant Friend. It's a really complex book that looks at the relationships and friendships of a very small Neapolitan community in Italy. The community is pervaded by violence and gossip. 
and there's a lot of undertones of class and education and it follows two little girls growing up and their relationship primarily with education actually and that forges a bond between them because the two of them are vying for being the most educated in, in essence I can't remember any of their names which is really awful because they're so similar Lenu and Leela something like this mm. so the two little girls are sort of constantly vying to outcompete each other educationally and one of them has to leave school early and that transforms into a strange dichotomy where one of them is continuing her education and the other one is trying to keep up and then eventually decides to pursue a different way of gaining power in her community and it's a really fascinating book and you said to me that the first 100 pages were boring and then I should keep on going after that (laughs) and I reckon I know why you said that (laughs) and I think it's because after the first 100 pages is when they start following romantic relationships and love starts to become part of the thing and I think you're a sucker for love. <laughs> I'm such a sucker for love. It's so true. I found the first 100 pages very hard to get into. And I mm-hmm. also think sometimes depictions of like little kids mm-hmm. going about their day and looking for their dolls and being scared of the creepy guy in the neighborhood. There's something mm-hmm. about it that doesn't hook me in the same way that romantic intrigue yeah. does. I think that's a very good observation. <laughs> I love the first 100 pages, actually. I thought there was something quite peculiar that you don't necessarily always see about the depiction of like really quite young people and the way in which they see the world and the way in which their world is distorted by things their parents say to them and how you're like, oh, I hate this person because that's what mum and dad said. And Mm. And I thought that was interesting in terms of psychology, actually, about how much of our understandings of the world and perceptions are based on just like totally random things that your parents might have said to you at one point or another but yeah I thought it was an extraordinary book why don't you tell us about what you love about the series and I think you've been watching the the tv series yes so I've read all of the it's a it's a quartet Mm -hmm. they're called the Neapolitan novels Mm -hmm. and there are three more and they follow those two characters through their lives into middle age oh wow actually I think the very very beginning of my brilliant friend you have Lenu speaking as a middle-aged woman and it comes Mm. full circle by the end of the four books the books just keep getting better and better and better Mm -hmm. as you explore these two different life paths that these two women from this really impoverished place Mm -hmm. in naples go on one has a a really kind of amazing academic and literary life and the other gets married very very young and is in a really quite brutal relationship and then finds her way out of it through educating herself in various Mm -hmm. different ways. There's a boy from elementary school who plays a role in both their lives through all Mm -hmm. of the remaining books. And there really is something here about class, about the mafia, Mm -hmm. about Mm -hmm. female friendship and the complexities of it, the deep bond and the intrinsic competition and the way that women even really Mm -hmm. really close friends find themselves pitted against each other Mm -hmm. and also the central character in the book Lenu who I think is 
in my brain, I'm like, well, that's Elena Ferrante. Like that's her, you know, that's her, that's her stand in for herself. Mm -hmm. Whether that's true or not, I don't know. I think it's so interesting because she writes about herself. She describes Mm -hmm. her own body and her own way of being in the world as just being disgusting and repulsive. And Mm -hmm. she also describes her intelligence as being inferior. Mm -hmm. And then we get glimpses into how she's actually perceived Mm -hmm. through other characters in the book. And you realize, oh, she's totally off. And Mm -hmm. she's suffering so much, again, because of this story that she tells herself about herself Mm -hmm. that isn't necessarily true. The four books offer up so much more that I'm not even touching on. From a writing point of view, one thing Mm -hmm. that Elena Ferrente is extraordinary at is cliffhangers. All of her chapters Mm -hmm. are short. Mm -hmm. They leave you kind of like... (gasps) with that that sense of needing to find out what happens next. And I think she mm-hmm. lays in a great one at the end of My Brilliant Friend, the way that the book ends, where there's a reveal about the shoes. Oh, tantalizing for someone that doesn't know anything. <laughs> yes, of course. Yes. I think I read that and didn't necessarily read into the significance of it. But yes, there is a cliffhanger at the end that's I presumed was more of actually a, like a betrayal I took that as a face value betrayal rather than like a cliffhanger for what might happen next. Oh, yeah, that actually really does make sense. I think that's also a great way to read it. (laughs) Yeah. I'm going to ask another question about how you feel because you're so open and so vulnerable and it's so refreshing and I'm going to use a comparison which might seem unflattering, but I don't think it is, that it's a literary Bridget Jones almost. <laughs> I'll take it. That's great. <laughs> but for a sort of new era that's a feminist Bridget Jones that's in control of her money or trying to be in control of her money and her relationships, but also, you know, her body and masturbation and, and so many kind of really intimate areas that you cover. Do you feel vulnerable putting that out into the world? Does that feel like a a huge step. You know, I had my dad, who's an English professor, proofread Mm -hmm. parts of the book. (laughs) And that was really, I think, the most horrible it's going to (laughs) get. You know, like, oh my God. You know, I sent him the pages and then I got looking through them after I'd sent them. And I'd given him a Mm -hmm. heads up and he was like, don't apologize for your past, Haley. You know, don't apologize for your past. It's fine. I can take it. I'm just going to look at grammar and syntax. And then I looked and it sort of within the first five pages, I was describing giving a blowjob and spitting the cum out the window of a moving car and splashing back and in. Just like, look 19. at the syntax, look at the syntax, just look at the syntax. <laughs> Horrible. I mean, just horrifying. And I, yeah, I talk about masturbation in it and I talk about sex and I talk about my mm-hmm. shame about my labia and you know i really get into i really get into a lot of those things i think there's part of me that finds i find some of that incredibly cathartic and i know mm-hmm. even with conver- in conversations with my girlfriends i've mm-hmm. always wanted to be like i think you feel this way do you think if you worry about this thing and it always <laughs> makes people laugh and it's always so relieving because then it it creates a conversation where you can actually really talk about the things that are bothering you. And so I think I just mm-hmm. wanted to bring that into the book. I also talk mm-hmm. about like pooing in the book and like getting a, I get an email in the book that makes me have diarrhea, which is like something <laughs> that's happened to me more yeah. than once in my life. And for me, there's something political as a woman mm-hmm. about talking mm-hmm. about peeing and pooing. I mean, it's not, mm-hmm. it's not like a gross out book, but it's not a book where nobody ever goes 
to the bathroom. You know, there's a few times yeah. I go to the bathroom in the book and, um, and sharing about my sex life and my body. It all just felt, it felt right to do when I was writing the book. And now that my dad's read it, I don't think anything's could be worse mm. than that. I, I think it's easier mm. with strangers than mm. with my dad. So I kind of feel fortified, although let's see what kind of response I get. Maybe I'll have a different answer <laughs> in a couple months. Well, I hope you have a response that warrants the brilliance of it. I, I think we've said it many a time already, but we honestly absolutely Something loved like, it. We love you. <laughs> <laughs> and I think to, to follow your formula theme, well, the themes of the book, I was so excited that you reached out to us to send us an early copy of the book. I did not think that my enjoyment of the book itself mm. could exceed how exciting it was to be <laughs> sent your brilliant work. And it totally did because, yeah, I felt like I was on a real, it sounds so cheesy to say, but I felt like I was on a real journey with you. I mm. felt so connected to all the aspects. I love that you you wove all of the aspects of, of that period of your life together. It wasn't like, here's the formula. Like you said, you mm-hmm. had the option to go down that road, but you you brought it all in. It was an absolute joy to read. Oh. And the thing that struck me first, what I was texting Alex about was, wow, the list of people that are popping into my head that I can't wait to send this book to when it's out mm-hmm. is so diverse. Mm-hmm. And I think that's really, really special to capture an audience that's that wide. I was thinking, mm-hmm. I can't wait to send it to my my friends who like work in the city and are really mathsy friends because they'll mm-hmm. love this for that, that side of it. And I can't wait to send it to the, my friends who are so interested in relationships and the dynamics of that. And, mm. and my friends who are theatre makers who will mm. totally revel in the R&D process. And mm-hmm. that's, that's something that's really special and I don't, haven't come across very often. So I think you've, you've mm-hmm. done something really brilliant there. Thank you so much. That just makes my day. I'm so, I'm so, so appreciative, first of all, that you guys read it and that you had me on the podcast and saying those things about it is just genuinely icing on the cake. Thank you. It means so much. You're so welcome. And we should also plug your brilliant podcast that was running alongside everything that's happening mm-hmm. with your book, The Cost of Love, which I've been tuning into. I loved the episode recently with Ito O'Brien. Wow, that was so, so fascinating to hear about that whole realm of the industry so yeah if you guys are interested in a another wonderful podcast then definitely hop over to the cost of love (laughs) thank you so much (laughs) oh thank you guys so much this was amazing before we finish remind us all of the date that the ex-boyfriend yard sale Mm. is available the 27th of may 27th of may we'll be there queuing outside waterstones (laughs) (laughs) Thank you so much, Haley. It's been great. Oh, thank you both.